What is American literary regionalism? How do ethics get confounded with aesthetics? Thanks to Danica Radishevich for getting me onto this line of thought. John Cheever's The Swimmer, 1964. The feeling of holding a cold gin drink, both hands, cooling down in a pale green pool on a hot day. It's a midsummer Sunday in Westchester County. It was one of those midsummer days when everyone sits around saying, I drank too much last night. Anya Yanagihara's A Little Life, 2015. The Loneliness of Cement and Plastic Mixed Being a body of mixed media, alienation as the passage of time Lower Manhattan But friendship as a way of life To relive and to erase You relive them again and again until they were neutralized until they became near meaningless with repetition, or until you could believe that there was something that had happened to someone else and you had just heard about it. For larger memories, you held the scene in your head like a film strip, and then you began to erase it, frame by frame. For the Romantics in the 19th century, making art was a matter of making the micro speak to the macro. If you describe a hair on the beloved's back so completely so fully, in such detail, that the specific becomes the general. The general specific. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. John Cheever and Hanya Yanagihara are similarly romantic. A capital R. Romance made capital, a mode of exchange between the writer and reader. Romance as capital spelled out in stars and hair and images. Love, sex, and timelessness. He shall die. Take him and cut him out in little stars. And he shall make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. But romance, like any other kind of capital, comes with a cost. The Swimmer is a short story by John Cheever. It was first published in The New Yorker in 1964. John Cheever was a mid-century fiction writer of a northeastern Westchester persuasion. He wrote a lot of short stories about men who failed to become heroes. 
More often, they become demigods that could. You like gin? It is my only weakness. To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> These men live in a version of Ossining, New York. These men fail and try and fail again and try and fail again. A forward and forever backward, forever backward, forever forward, all right. Strophe and any strophe, strophe and any strophe, hey, any strophe, any strophe, oh, come on, baby. Ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. Samuel Beckett. Cheever's men are men who drink a lot. Men, men who mistake the experience of emotions for genius. genius. Men, men who, who fantasize with a capital Freudian PH. Fantasy. <laughs> Welcome to the fantasy. Fantasy, I think, is a primary mode for literary regionalism. This was at the edge of the Westerhazy's pool. The pool fed by an artesian well with a high iron content was a pale shade of green. It was a fine day. In the west, there was a massive stand of cumulus clouds, so like a city seen from a distance from the bow of an approaching ship, that it might have had a name, Lisbon Hackensack. John Cheever is not often depicted by literary critics as a regionalist. I believe this is because John Cheever writes a lot about New York, where, according to critics, most everyone worth knowing already lives. To them, Cheever would only be a regionalist insofar as he lives in the world, the world being a region of the universe. Cheever writes the universe. Literary regionalism, sometimes called local color, is a type of fiction writing where environment is prioritized. The ways of a town, the colors and sounds of a time and space, a description of a single hair growing out of the crook of someone's arm in New Hampshire. The kind of hair that could only grow in New England. She was always talking about money. It was worse than eating your peas off a knife. He dove into the pool, swam its length, and went away. So what kind of hair does Cheever grow? The next pool on his list, the last but two, belonged to his old mistress, Shirley Adams. If he had suffered any injuries, the Biswangers, they would be cured here. Love, sexual roughhouse, in fact, was the supreme elixir, the painkiller. <clears throat> the brightly colored pill that would put the spring back into his step. Hanya Yanagihara's A Little Life is also regionally literary. The region? The New Yorker. The magazine that renders a body to a state. State being space being. Beneath this mask there is more than flesh. Beneath this mask there is an idea, Mr. Creedy. And ideas are bulletproof. 
According to Roger Ebert, the story of the swimmer exemplifies the kind of allegory that the New Yorker is super into. He writes, Like the sordid characters by John Updike and J.D. Salinger, Cheever's swimmer is a tragic hero disguised as an upper-class suburbanite. There are a lot of tragic heroes hidden in suburbia, I guess, perhaps because so many of them subscribe to the New Yorker. You are what you read. Yanagihara's regionalism, like Cheever's, is also based in fantasy. But, whereas Cheever's Eden in The Swimmer is Westchester, Yanagihara writes a more urban bucolia. In both fantasies, class is irrelevant. Class, as a category, is so complex that in order to even tell a story within the bounds of realism, it can't matter. Void. become lost to the world in which I otherwise wasted so much time. Jude St. Francis, the title character of A Little Life, loves this piece by Gustav Mahler. Classical music is a favorite refuge for characters in literary regionalism. To describe an environment, you have to create a sensorium. Light in fall leaves, rushing cars and rivers, cold glasses of gin, Mahler. Mahler. Mahler is a kind of cultural capital. Names as feelings. Feelings as names. Mahler. Meaning different things to different people, Mahler is a floating signifier. But in Cheever and Yanagihara, Mahler's hair floats in the Hudson River. On the threshold of entering a new life, or at least a different world. Does anyone still wear a hat? I've heard people whisper things under their breath abruptly, but the way you said, oh, this cat, was, I mean, the way I just said that now is probably three times slower. I'm being generous. And louder. All right. I miss that. I We're miss gonna that. roll. What do you mean, be generous? One, 1,000, two, 1,000. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Noisy Ghost. I'm so excited to have you. We are here again with me, Eleanor Russell, and Andre Kello. Hey. And Eric Wenzel. Ooh. And with our special ghost, Dale McKeek. Hey. Da- Dale McPeak. That was not even close. I said it on purpose, Mel. Mel McPeak. <laughs> Mel McSleek. That's me. That's Mel McSleek. He's here. It's fine. Hi. Hi. This is Dale McPeak. He is a stand-up comic in the city of Chicago, and he has been so wonderful to grace us with his presence for our episode about The Swimmer, which is a 1968 film uh, starring Burt Lancaster, uh, directed by Frank Perry, slash kind of maybe Sidney Pollack? Sidney Pollack definitely went in and uh, took over the production after the director was fired. But how do we know, like, Nobody what knows exactly which shots exactly. are his. Exactly, yeah. Well, we know the one is the replacement of the... 
Yeah, the, the, the victim. The swimming pool scene with the... <laughs> the one swimming pool scene. That's right, right yeah. The, the scene that takes place in the swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> this, this movie probably has more swimming pools in it than the movie Swimming Pool. Well, at the end Wait, of the... Wait, there's a movie called Swimming Pool? <laughs> yeah, no, it's about, it's about lesbians, though. That's the one with... It's not for you. Never mind. It is for you. Wait, <laughs> yeah. Charlotte Rampling movie yeah. with um, oh, Ludivine Senye. Yeah. It's... Honestly, I thought we were going to watch Swim Fan. <sighs> My buddy what? said that when I told him the movie with we were Erica watching. With Erica Christensen and... He asked if we can switch Jesse... <laughs> Jesse Bradford. Bradford. No, The Swimmer is a film. It's based on a short story that was originally published in The New Yorker in... I think 1964, but the film was in 68, and uh, the story is by John Cheever, and it's a very talky script for obvious reasons. Um, it's about a dude who is uh, in his uh, 50s who decides that he has returned home from, from a very long trip away uh, to swim home in all of his friends' pools back to his home in Westchester, New York. So he's going to his he's, idea he's swimming, of sw- swimming the county. He's like swimming in all the pools. What that means is that he's just he swims in a pool. He walks down the street. He swims in another yeah, pool yeah. and so on until he's home. Yeah. I'm really, uh, yes, blown away by the the cognitive dissonance required to believe that you're swimming home. When it's a romantic gesture, it's not, but it's so absurd, it's not even romantic. I mean, it's just like, see, I don't even see it as a romantic gesture. I see it as like him being like, How can I like fuck myself up enough in order to like justify me coming home to my wife? No, he really, house? he really believes he's swimming. Well, you know, it actually reminds me of um, the kind of things that performance artists would do in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. Like the guy who's who did a performance art piece where it was just him riding a horse from one side of a yeah, corral yeah. to the other and back again over and over. Yeah, yeah so or the like... The whole thing uh, is that him being like, and everyone's like, you're crazy, Ned. Like, or like, uh, yeah, it is pretty arty. Like John Baldessari going to the places on the map in California... Like going to visit the letter A where it appears written yeah. over it's, the it's state. It's the kind of thing that you can do if you have nothing else going on in your life. Well, yeah, and, and performance artists used to have a sense of humor, so they would do dumb shit. Yeah. 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 Now they mostly just like purposefully get themselves shot by the police. Yeah. That's boring. Wait. That was Chris. Wait. Chris Burden got shot. That was No, but he 70s. shot himself. No, he had someone <laughs> shoot him. It was a. You're thinking of Van Gogh. Van Gogh shot himself. So Chris Burden yeah, had a... Yeah, when Andre a, thinks of performance art, he thinks of Van Gogh. That's a studio assistant shoot him? He had a marksman, but they missed and hit him in the arm. Like, they were supposed to graze him, but they missed and shot him through the arm. Chris Burden is a, a big character in the Chris Krause book, uh, Video Green, about uh, what it was like teaching art at the art center in uh, in California. Wait, I Chris Burden was the dude in the O.J. Simpson Chris Darden. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. I'm, I'm so sorry. Yeah, Chris Darden. Yeah, I thought you meant. All right. Another very it. important 90s Californian. Oh, okay. Mm. Tying it all together. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, Chris Burden was in the 70s, though. Yes, but in the 90s, Chris Burden was teaching at the Art Center, and that was when uh, Chris Krause wrote the book <laughs> Video Green about how awful it was to be involved in arts education in the 90s. Oh, do you have this book? I should probably read it, or maybe I should have read it. Yeah, I'll read. I'll uh, I'll lend it to you. Read it to me. Yeah, I'll read it to you. Once upon a time, 
in '94. The song "Closer" was raging up the charts. But this movie opens with this like weird, like kind of arty. Go ahead and bring that mic right up close to your face. This movie begin. This movie begins with like a sort of arty thing where they have the the main character running through the woods in a swimsuit in the '70s, right? Just like running through the woods. Trying, you know, not a care in the world, just like being alive. No, he. I think Close he looked. Passing. I think he. Yeah, he seems a little bit hurried and frenetic and anxious to me. For what reason? I don't Dale know. That's why. Th- and Eric. That's why this movie's so bizarre. Because, uh, and that's why I was wanting uh, in in preparation. I was like, well, what are the first sentences of this book? How does this character appear? Because. Actually, yeah, yeah, where was it coming from? Yeah, we don't know. So that's, I mean, that's my whole thing. Is like, did he step through a wrinkle in time or something? Like, he seems to have the memento disease where he forgot everything that ever happened to him in his entire life. Yeah. So I think maybe he has been doing this. Well, I think the whole thing, and this is a true thing about John Tiber, is that he's like, well, for men who are born in a certain socioeconomic class class no longer is an issue to address in in short stories and in fiction so it's like you assume that you're just like within this particular way of being where it's like if i just run far enough it's fine and but if i film, just be least, far enough it's fine and i can just do whatever i want far I enough, swim enough. There, i swim enough and it's fine there is a class element especially at the ending when he encounters the poor people Oh yeah, and like there's the, a wonderful the John Cheever story called um, "Christmas is What is it? It's like Christmas is a horrible time for poor people," where the main character is this elevator man who, like, tell when everyone in his building says like "Merry Christmas," he's like, "Oh, it's never very merry for someone like me." Uh, poor people, it, Christmas is horrible for poor people, and then they just like give him uh, food and drinks, and then at the end of the story, he ends up getting fired because he's so drunk. He hasn't eaten anything, but he's gotten so drunk from the drinks that they given him that he has he like took this lady from who lived on the penthouse on a ride in the elevator, where he was like, "Oh, you! Oh my God, we're going to the first floor, but I'm not going to stop on the first floor. I'm going to keep going to the basement. You ready? You ready?" And it's just like, and then she gets him fired because that like that's a really fucked up thing to do to someone who's trying to go to their lobby and like live in the world and the whole thing with him is that he is invested in the idea of what does it mean to live a life where money isn't a problem and doesn't indicate or identify anything about you that's like rich people erotica. it's incredible it's, it's it's like that's his whole career i have no and idea like, why you're so into john cheever honestly like they I, just <laughs> i don't think that he's a particularly funny writer i don't think that he's a particularly beautiful prose stylist i don't think that he's terribly good at storytelling i don't know that there's anything really valuable in the text that he writes i don't know why you're so obsessed with him you've been reading him for more than a year now like he's some sort of a like like you're gonna find something in there i have no clue like that john cheever character that's like trying to (laughs) trick a woman into being smart and he just can't exactly because women are stupid it's not even like i'm it's not like even like i'm a munozian disidentifying where i like read something and i'm like this is so not like who i am but i can find the moments where i can read something else against it it's not even that what i'm into with him is that John Cheever is Chevster Cheevtoes. He has this Chev Chelios ability to describe a situation, like like a circumstance within a room, like that he's 
like identifying at the top of a story at the end of a story. Like I'm really more into his beginnings and his endings than I am in anything else within them. Where uh, he just is like, this is what the room was like. There was uh, a woman in the corner and there was a piano in the right, on the right and it looked like this and it felt like this and this is what it sounded like. And there was a man with a tie tucked into his pants and the tip yeah, of his penis and, was poking like, out over me, his belt. It's like, I can't even imagine that kind of confidence. <laughs> just be able to like walk into a room and describe what it looked like. Like, what? Like, I could walk into a room and describe what it looked like? Like, oh my god. Like, <laughs> I don't know. There's something sort of insane to me about it. Like, the idea that you can then identify who a person is by the by the room that they're in. Like, it's so... I think that there's probably something that was in common between the new Hollywood filmmakers that were making stuff in the late 60s and early 70s and the the guys who were writing this kind of... Uh, indulgent white boy shit like yeah. we were saying he's the the Gentile uh, Philip Roth. He's a Gentile Philip Roth. Yeah, or the uh, Augustin Burroughs for straights. Yeah. <laughs> right? I think, uh, who was it who came up with this one? Who, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. No. We'll just assume that, that I said everything that was funny. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But in the movie, <laughs> I'm interested in talking about the movie, movie because uh, how can you even it becomes, like, actually inexcusable when you make it into a movie. Like, when you're reading it as text, you're like, oh, I can read all kinds of things into it. When you make make it into a movie, it's like, oh, no. These people are just fucking insufferable. They just are rich, and they don't care, and they want other rich people to come to their parties. So, you know, the part of the film that felt the most, like, honest and relatable to me, and actually the least obnoxious was the opening sequence where they're sitting around talking about how drunk they are because mm-hmm. they had too much to drink the night before and they're all hung over and, mm-hmm. and and they all want more drinks so that they can feel better because it that was the part of the movie that felt the most like a hangout movie which is something mm-hmm. that I love I'm crazy about hangout movies you know like uh, one that we saw uh, was uh, that we just saw the uh, the ticket stub that we'd found lying around the house was only lovers left left alive alive. yeah Yeah. which feels a lot like the beginning of this and not least of which because this film is also populated by wealthy vampires yeah i mean i think that you wait these people were vampires (laughs) they would have made it 10 times better yeah i think that you only get to be the kind of person that gets to just hang about if especially if you're a woman (laughs) it is if you are a uh a fun vampire who is recruiting to create another worldview. I, I don't know. I think these guys were like reverse vampires because they're out during the daytime and they drink Bloody Marys. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I'm just wondering how he got there. Like, was he dropped by a sh- spaceship or? You wake up in the woods. Yeah. Well, he's one of those dudes in the 50s and 60s where he just can sort of wind up wherever he wants to be in any given moment. But he, but he doesn't have like, any shoes or anything. Where the fuck did he come from? As it's he gets, a mystery. As he gets farther from the starting right, point, that's the, that's the, the, more, yeah. the people that he interacts with hate him more and more until by the time he gets to, all the way to his house, people are like actually trying to like, you know, like assault him. The thing I like about this movie, too, is it actually shows the, like, the limits you can take for having women just take care of you your entire narrative. Like... The lady that he wants to be with uh, can't actually help him out that much. 
Like the or the the lady that he used to be with can't really help him out that mm-hmm. much. Like it's just like, yeah, this is the limits if you like fuck yourself over enough is that like you are just completely alone, utterly, totally. And like I'm not saying this is a feminist film by any means or even a sort of I think it's anti-feminist because it it's, romanticizes yeah, even, his even, struggle. Yeah, yeah. He's a horrible monster who destroyed the lives yeah. of every woman he ever interacted with. But we're seeing him his the disintegration of his life as a kind of beautiful, uh, romantic, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like self-destruction, like like a kind of yeah. Arthur Rambeau, but it took twice as long yeah. to happen. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's like uh, he drank too much and he loved too much, and his life fell apart. He deranged his senses; it just in half speed compared to the the real experts at it. I don't know. I yeah, kind of, so I that's kind of... bad. That's a moral tale. It's like, look at this fuck up. No, but he should have drank himself to death faster. No, no he kind... shouldn't have fucked everything up. You one... fucked up everything, and this is what you get. I want one thing. I want to like bring Dale into there was like the idea that like this is a dude who just, like, made a decision in the middle of nowhere. Like, he didn't... He went to, like, a few houses before he decided that he wanted to swim home. Swim home. No, no, it's the thing the he decides that he gives house. a speech at the ha- at the top of the film. But we don't know how I'm many gonna call it the, I'm going to call it the River Lucinda. Yeah, for, for his wife. <laughs> his wife, Lucinda. Williams. Yeah. yeah. What did you but think? But he could have stopped at houses before that one. For the... Before the first one, he could have. That could have been his third house. I suppose there's a way in which you could imagine that his entire life was him swimming home, right? Mm, you know, he, this no, is a guy who loves. Imagine that, yeah. He is a guy who's been who loves swimming so much, and he talks in the very first scene of the film about even when he was a little kid, he would swim for miles and miles and miles, yeah. and it was his favorite thing to do, and it was something that he's been doing pretty much constantly his whole life. So, you know, if you think about it like that, then it's like a heavy-handed and shittily done metaphor for the way that he deals with interpersonal relationships in his life, right? right? Because he never sticks around or gives a shit about anything long enough to actually remember anything that happens because he can never remember what happened in his past. Mm. And all the people that he interacts with are like, don't you remember you hurt my feelings, you destroyed my life, and then you just swam away? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but you can't swim away. It's a pool. You're like, didn't you just swam 10 feet? Well, that's the (laughs) thing. That's what the pool is. It's an illusion. I read it as a shitty sort of metaphor for what it is to be a writer, like a really, really shitty metaphor for being a writer, which is why it sucks, where it's like, yeah, and then you, like, decided to have more fun with your friends than actually writing anything. And, yeah, you, named swimming. Maybe each pool is a short story. Each pool is yeah, a it's like a vignette. Story. It's like it's like uh, and a novella is an Olympic a, size. Yeah, it's like all vignettes, but of uh, personality and about interacting with other persons. That you're, it's like it's like in the shape of a story, but it's not actually a story. Like it's not actually an interesting uh, change. Like there's no transformation he makes really. Well, I guess that is that is cool. Like it's I like it's a short kinda... story that's made up of short stories about each of the people he interacts with, right? And he's yeah. still the same. Yeah. yeah, it's a vignette. Yeah, it's like the awakening. Well, he does change because he at the end realizes, "Oops, fuck, yeah, you monsters! Came, you blew it all up." But if he if he has because... memento disease, then we don't know for a fact that he doesn't just like. Does this happen every day? That's why he's like been, and that's why the first people are like, "Cool, man, real cool. That's wild. You're crazy, man." <laughs> That's why we love having you at our he parties. He's so fun. Yeah, and then, like the thing where he says he's like uh, at the end with the um, 
lady, he's like, oh, God, you're all grown up now. And I'm like, wait, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be, like, sympathetic to this? Like, fuck you. That's also, gross. Also, we That's should weird. mention that um, Burt Lancaster... Is who, 55 years old. And he spends the literally every single frame of the film with his shirt off. And he's a total Babylonian. He is. Yeah, it looks a hell of a lot better than I will when I'm 50. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Sorry, Spoiler babe. alert, everyone. <laughs> and, uh, but he, like, hits on this girl that was the babysitter for his kids. Gross. And, and then he's yeah. like, you're all grown up. And I'm supposed to be, like, into this? No, but wait a like, minute, though. But we we're met, we learn later that those kids that she babysat were drunk drivers. Who died. So how? That seems so pretty she's... fucking convenient, though. Not super convenient. <laughs> I mean, I think. Well, that... I mean, if you're trying to get rid of your two kids, then yes. But if you're trying to make your protagonist into a sympathetic character, whose wife was a shitty mom who let her kids be drunks, and uh... no, but I'm just saying, age-wise, if those girls were old enough to drink and drive, then the girl old ah. enough to babysit them isn't that young. Nobody's old enough to drink no. and drive. Oh, Andre. shut up. But Wait, you know what Andre, I mean. <laughs> Andre, Andre, saying? Uh, Wait, I just want to. Well, this guy, uh, this this about guy the seems to have a drinking problem. Yeah, everybody in, in Don Cheever's story. And yeah, there's not a drink in his hand. Hello. Hello, Dale. Hello. <laughs> this is something that I hello. was hoping that we would hello? talk about during <laughs> this episode, actually, was that this is a movie that is sort of about the like casual alcoholism of mid-century America. Yeah. For dudes. Well, and also uh, for ladies, but mostly for dudes. Well, he drinks at every pool. And yeah. everybody is constantly drinking all day long everywhere they go. Young people, old people, rich people, poor people. I don't think anyone's drinking at the public pool. Weren't they? And no. if they weren't, they should have been because that was no. gross. <laughs> There's no way I would get anywhere near that pool unless I, I had had a few. drunk by the time he got there? Well, he'd been swimming the whole time, so maybe he's burning it off. Yeah. And also, Running, it's, you know, he jumping. seems to be a total lush, so he, you know, he's probably got a quite a tolerance built up. Yeah. yeah. He only has, like, a Wait. martini, and then he has to walk, like, ten miles. Wait, can you guys... Yeah. And he doesn't finish his drinks. Really. I'm going to read a, the last... He just last, pours him into the pool. Yeah. A, par- <laughs> a paragraph from The Swimmer by John Cheever where he says, um, uh, it was probably the first time in his adult life that he had ever cried... Certainly the first time in his life that he had ever felt so miserable, cold, tired, and bewildered, he could not understand the rudeness of the of the caterer's barkeep. Oh, yeah. This is the guy who um, gave him a hard time at the public swimming pool. Or the rudeness of a mistress who had come to him on her knees and showered his trousers with tears. Ew. He had swum too long. He had been immersed. Was she blowing him and crying at the same time? That's gross. And his nose and his throat were now were sore from the water. Well, yeah, I hope. Oh yeah, all the chlorine. What he needed then was a drink. Like after all this, he's just like, I fucking need another fucking drink. Like like the whole thing. The end of the story ends with him just like, I just need another drink in order to get through. I think John Cheever maybe has a drinking problem. No. No. The thing the thing I wanted to point out was he spends as much time well, he spends more time on land than he does by sea. 
and he spends a hell of a lot of time hanging out with horses and running around like a horse. horse Why isn't this called the Horseman? <laughs> Doesn't he? Wait, Dale. Don't I, Dale and Eric slash Andre? Don't you remember him uh, doing a thing where he wants to? Um, doesn't he want to ride one of the horses at a point, or he like wants to like? No, he doesn't want to ride anyone. No, he, he raced a horse. Yeah, he, he raced one. a he horse. He runs alongside a horse. He ran, yeah, because he's so virile and young. Yeah, no, it's a cheaper thing where he's like obsessed with like, well, because I'm so young and virile, I need to like do all these things, but I can't because I'm too much of a drunk. Like that's the that's but the I'm thesis of all this stuff. Is he's like, uh, I wanted to be like Odysseus, but I was too drunk. But all if right. I weren't drunk, now this is something that you. <laughs> brought up a little while ago is that you imagine and other people have said as much that this is the odyssey yeah it's a thing yeah remember yeah. when we were halfway through the movie and i came out of the bathroom and i, I know said, and, and eric, shit, and eric was like a thousand times smarter than me and you and everybody like yeah we were, but we were talking i was thinking about this because you and i were talking about the odyssey <laughs> uh the other <laughs> Sorry. I no, will, I will no, have don't be sorry. It was like... You and I were talking about the concept of uh, Odysseus and the sirens mm-hmm. and how he tied himself to the mast and the oarsmen put wax in their ears, but Odysseus wanted to hear. He wanted to hear it, but he just like wanted to like go through it as like a, a so Christian thing. This reminded like, me. If I hear it. And I suffer enough, but I don't do anything about it. It's fine. But no, he wanted to hear it be- because, because they're like, it's, it's beautiful. the best song in the world, but it also makes yeah. you kill yourself. Right. So, he's he's like, like, so this he's... is what it is to be a mid-century American alcoholic modernist writer, right? Because you are yeah. saying that you are going to suffer and destroy your life and become a, uh, a horrible caricature of a male human being. Uh, you're going to become a Philip Roth or a John Cheever or an Augustine Burroughs. And <laughs> as a result, you'll achieve some sort of a connection with a divine spirit of creativity, but you'll uh, sacrifice your humanity and your dignity. Right. Like he's assuming that there's a world in which you can live where you can be uh, um, Augustine Burroughs and you can also be a... Uh, immune from criticism, right? Like, you can, like, live where you can... Uh, if you suffer enough, yeah. then your bad behavior gets forgiven because you suffered enough. Right, or, yeah, like, it's like I the, char- the character in Hanya and Yanagihara, where you're, like, in, in a little life where you just, like, suffer enough that it's fine. Yeah. Well, I think that's the story of The Swimmer. We're seeing what has to happen to a guy where we begin to feel sympathetic for this huge piece of human garbage no and there's a, a huge connection actually between susan sontag Su- susan sontag and john cheever where uh john cheever read a lot of the shit that susan sontag published in the new yorker about like camp and about literature and about how you need to like do certain things in order to like develop a pathos and order to have characters relate to you so i think that he was like aware of this sort of feminine mystique and like the uh and about feminism that was happening in the 60s. And he was just like, yeah, but, like, what if I made my dude, like, really smart? Like, he solved his problem. He solved his feminist problem. Like, like women can't give him a hard time for a shit if the dude in the novel is really fucking smart. Like, how smart? Like, smart enough to understand what feminism is? Like, f- smart enough to 
have a story appear in the New Yorker. Like, uh, he's a character and he's really smart and he has a lot of misgivings. But if being published in the New Yorker is a cure for misogyny, then misogyny has never existed. I mean, that's kind of what I think the New Yorker exists for, though. Is that it's like if I can to keep be, misogyny going, <laughs> kind of like if it, if I can if I can pretend enough, if I can if I can tell a story about how I feel guilty about my mm. uh, virility as a dude, if I tell a story about my anxiety, if I tell okay, a story so about then the this, swimmer is a he's this is the swimmer, the story of the Christ. Yeah, this yeah. is this is a Ben Hur type. So what I think is interesting is you guys really hate this movie. But you're giving it like a ton of credit and you're like really seriously analyzing it. And I love this movie and I don't think it's about any of that. I just think it's like kind of stupid and funny and bizarre. It is funny. Wait, what do you and think I is funny about well, it though? We, we brought you here to have ideas. Yeah, so you and Dale. If you, if you want to wait until you've got an idea, then <laughs> we will certainly Dale, do you think it was be funny? right here. Uh, I didn't. I didn't think anything was really funny. I thought it was funny when there was just a couple naked in their front yard, but nothing like really stood out to me. Nothing really made you like. Haha. Uh, no, no, no. No, I mean, I I Joan Rivers is in this movie, and she she's doesn't. Not funny. She's not funny. And she's, she's like thirty-five in the movie, and like the only reason I know like, she's in it is because like when she she did like a comedy special, and she talked about that was like her first movie role, and she like made fun of it. She was like, <laughs> "Well, movie. I mean, I don't think it's <laughs> funny, like." This is a comedic work. It's funny in our appreciation of it, like a mystery science theater 3000. Like, yeah. it's so bizarre. The cuts don't make any sense. There's all these scenes in the wood woods where it's like from this perspective as though it's like a, a drifter or Bigfoot that's about to They're using long them. lenses to give you the sense that the viewer is really far away but watching them from this great distance. Yeah, but like we're spying on them like this like Bigfoot that's about to jump out and like eat him. Yeah. And then just all these things where they just cut it really bizarre times. And also we're so high above them, yeah. right? They're in the forest and we're, we're like a sniper. We're from far away yeah. and from really high up like we're in a tree. Yeah. No, but and that's why I like it because it's just like what the fuck and then this whole everything like all the things you're saying that are like awful that it fails i'm like i know i love it like and when he freaks out about his yeah. his hot dog wagon it's so fucking brilliant it yeah was the climax of the movie. he's like what you where'd you get that hot dog wagon hey that's mine. Was there a climax? What would you think about the structure of it? About the like the shape of it as a narrative, as like a a, a movie narrative? Because I guess the first scene of the film is him in his friend's pool, being like, "Hey, I'm in my friend's pool. Like, I'm hanging out in my friend's pool." Uh, and that's when he first starts to develop the idea that like he should go on this journey in uh, swinging through all of his friends' pools throughout Westchester County in order to get to his house, which is supposed to, that idea itself is supposed to indicate something about his personality, right? But that doesn't work in cinema. In a in a story, you can, like, read, oh, this is the kind of guy that fucking swims in his friends' pools for Right, a you day. can use shorthand, but, you know, you yeah. can use shorthand in movies, too, and, and talented, successful yeah, filmmakers are able well. to do that. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, they're able to communicate complicated yeah. ideas and what this filmmaker did was do some really beautiful photography yeah. and some you know uh pretty up to the minute uh proto mtv kind <laughs> of editing you know tons of uh 
dreamy, foggy uh, superimpositions and transitions that that give you this. Yeah, it seemed like a video for well, whatever they did. I guess like on American Bandstand or something, they'd have interludes that were yeah. like. Sure, like the band video. Air Supply or something. And Cheever, and Cheever right. writes stories like that. Like, one of my favorite it, stories wait, of his... It looks like the music video for Islands in the Sun by Weezer. That's what oh, that whole movie looks like. No, no, no but wait. But they, but Weezer's copying this style, like, from the... From the, the 70s. From yeah, the sure, 70s, yeah. where they would do... Yeah, it's the, shoot the uh, point yeah. the camera directly at the sun, and then it would be like a singer songwriter talking about like the scenes in the wheat you know. in uh, Virgin Suicides, or the scenes in the wheat in the in the movie Gladiator, or yeah. the scenes in the wheat in Badlands, or the scenes or like, in the wheat in Days of. This sounds stupid, but there's, Heaven, like, there's you know? a literary thing where, uh, and they do this in, in romantic comedies and in dramas all the time, where you'll like uh, instead of reiterating the plot over again, they'll just have. The person on the phone experienced the plot on the other side of the story. Can so you we'll give us an like, example? Like in... Um, Scream? When they get... Like in... Uh, it's a thing they do in fiction more, really, actually. In movies, they'll just like uh, explain to... They'll just like be like... And she'll be like, really? That happened to the police? I can't believe the police dealt with that. And it'll be like a thing. It's like an, there's a shorthand. You can do it. And you don't have to repeat the story over again. You can oh, like have the person... Oh, I know what person, you're talking about. You can have yeah. the person Ex- experience what? what's happening. Repeat what you said to provide exposition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, what, and well, you're saying this to the police? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. But what, well, what Andre, you kept... Citing things that were citing the thing. I mean, I'm thinking like the video for Strawberry Fields, which was a film in the 60s where there's like a lot of just can't pointing the camera at the setting sun and you get a lens flare. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Like, in the um, all the Richard Donner and Richard Lester movies in the 60s, like all the Richard Lester um, uh, Beatles movies like Help and yeah. Eight Days a Week, not Eight Days a Week, uh, The Hard Day's Night. Right where there are all these long montages of, yeah. of pretty photography, and a lot of it's filled with lens flares and with double exposures and with artifacts that are a result yeah. of the shitty lenses that they're using. I don't know. Yeah, but they're doing it intentionally because it's like cosmic. Dale. Yeah, sort of looks European. Dale. Dale. Yeah. Dale. What do you think? Hey. Go ahead and bring that mic right up close to your face. <laughs> Dale. <laughs> Dale. Yeah. What did that remind you of, that movie? The movie? Oh, there's that question. Uh, the one you asked Dale. before we recorded. Yeah. I can't think of any movie that, like, bored me like that. <laughs> uh, like, it was... It doesn't even be like... I mean, like, were th- was there something like Burt Lancaster did that was just like, you were like, oh, fuck that guy. He does that thing. Like, what, yeah, is, what is the kept, thing that he's doing? He kept his shirt off the whole time. I know. That was I know. Fuck that guy. Pretty annoying. I don't know. I just thought it was not a good movie at all. Never reapplied sunscreen. No. Nope. I don't know. It's kind of nice, though. Like, I don't know. Normally you see movies like that, and it's like a lady with her top off the whole time. So I guess that's kind of yeah. nice. It's just know. so funny. Like, the no whole one cares. No one cares. <laughs> I'm in the wrong group for that. Yeah. <laughs> I just... I don't know. I think... Are you asking us to complain about movies where women have their top off all the time? I just, like what movie you're complaining. You're complaining. <laughs> like the moving swimming pool, like the one we were mentioning at the beginning oh, of the film. You're complaining about him, like, I mean, I guess the premise of this film was that he would be swimming to his home through yeah. the county, and he did that. Oh, this should have taken place in the 20s, so it was one of those wool ones that, like, 
was a shirt and a pants combined. If he did it in like a hair shirt, that would have been good. I would have watched that movie more. Oh, that'd be great because there'd just be these scenes where he gets out of the pool and then he just has like, this hulking yeah. wool <laughs> swimming suit, you know, that's just like drenched, you know, and it's just like for 10 miles leaves water. What if you, what if you were wearing but he, nothing, but he was, but a, a full three piece suit were penciled the crotch on was cr- to, his, oh. to his body, like with, with a colored pencil. Oh, I was hoping, well, that your skin, you can't put colored pencil on. Oh, pastels then or something. No, that would blow up. Tattoos. All right. Yeah. Let's say he How has a body. Entire th- that's a whole thing where they paint your body. They paint. That sounds uh, dumb. Oh, yeah. yeah. But that's a whole industry. It's like. I think one of the things that makes this movie fail, though, is that there's this idea that like. That it's completely incoherent and there's nothing that ever happens. Well, that would be one thing. Completely coherent. No, that would be one thing. It's 100% uh, I coherent. I think that like, it's like there are no tragedy. consequences to anything that happens. And I think that if. I thought I thought this whole movie was consequence. It's like he lost everything. He lost everything, but like he's like running in place because he lost everything. But like, you know, it's one of those of... things where it's like the big twist ending. But the problem is that the twist yeah, ending is the thing yeah. that determines what the stakes are. So yeah. you you have no reason to give a shit about anything that happens until the movie's already over. Yeah. yeah. Like this is the thing about the shape of it. Like, like there's a way in which you can think about a movie as like a line, right? Where Something happens and then something else happens. And the thing that happened before affects your ability to think about the thing that happens next. But there's also a way of thinking about a movie as like an object, right? A thing where once you've seen the whole thing, the whole thing exists in your mind all at once. Sort of like the way that you remember a nightmare and then the nightmare itself sits in your head as a problem. That's how memory is supposed to exist, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. So sometimes you think about a movie as being an experience and sometimes you think of it as a memory, right? So this movie seems to exist entirely as memory, despite yeah. the fact that the guy has no memories. Yeah. Which is exactly which is why like short memento. stories yeah. That's don't... an argument for John being John Cheever's short stories don't make sense as films. But that means that there's no suspense. It means yeah. that there's no dramatic tension, since the whole thing exists as a way of looking back on the thing that you're experiencing that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. Which explains where he's coming from. This is like... Uh... It makes more narrative sense from that perspective, but it also means that it's completely fucking boring. Yep. Yeah, yeah, but didn't you guys just watch it and you were just excited? You're like, this is boring. I yeah. like boring. Well, I I was really entertained. Like the, I mean, when he goes and he sees. So spoiler alert: he he gets home and and uh, he, he, everything's gone, and there are like literally vines growing over everything. Well, I think that John Cheever is sort of the worst in that there's he's invested in a surprise ending, even though everyone involved knows that it's not going to be a surprise. And that's why he is super old fashioned. Even though he was writing in the sixties, it seemed like he was writing something from the forties because it's so like the idea that you can, like he, he thought that his ideas mattered and he thought that his ideas were creative and interesting in the sixties. And they were not like, he's just like a dude that's, thinks that his behavior towards women and his behavior towards uh, money and how much money he can make in the future is like a revelation and it's just I was yeah I was just thoroughly entertained by how flat everything felt like yeah so he goes to the abandoned house and then they then they show him on the tennis court because he's expecting to see his two girls and it's it starts raining this 
beautiful sunny day starts raining yeah. right when he gets to the yeah. house and you're like oh god what no, next we know that he's no wait a- wait wait so you're like what next and then they're like oh there's the tennis court and you're like there's like vines on the tennis court because it's old and it's you know it's it's abandoned yeah. and then the camera literally fucking pans back and forth as though two people are playing tennis and it's following the ball and then they're like and you're like, oh, my God, this is so awful. I love it. And then they're like, what next? And then they uh, they dub in the sounds of, like, laughing children and, like, balls. Wait, and it's like, wait, oh, my God, this is Dale, so awful. Dale, as a ball, how do you feel about this film? Like, when they were representing balls. The balls? All of them? Yeah, like, all of them. Like, I know that you're a ball, so I, I, I want to know how you feel about that. When the fuck is that them. supposed to mean? <laughs> is that, like, a burn? <laughs> I've never, I've never been asked a question like that in my life. I don't know, man. This movie not for me. I don't know. I don't know how much I can add to the, about the movie because I just, I kind of zoned out at a certain point and like stayed there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, it was the guy's real creepy and rude. <laughs> yeah, and he's rude. I had he's no, rude. I had no he's sympathy rude. for him at all. That's what I'm with him. Is not that he's like a fucking. Like chauvinistic asshole, but that he's fucking rude. He's like he just oh, shows yes, up at people's you've parties. You've grown up. Oh yes, I'm gonna take you on this journey. These people that I haven't invited myself to yet. Like, yeah, no, it's fucked up. It's not an okay thing. To just, that like, he goes ass. to all these parties yeah. and he doesn't bring one bottle of wine. No, he doesn't bring one. a bag of potato chips. Like you know? when I do that shit, I'm just like, I'm so sorry, I'm a grad student. Like I'm like I try to make something mm-hmm. of it, but like Jesus, yeah. You gotta fucking apologize yeah, when somebody, you're wearing the like fucking outfit. You somebody know? stole my hot dog wagon. I'd be pretty upset too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's what it all is. I think that that oh my god. Okay, that's what that means. So that's his masculinity, right? Hot dogs. Well, and hot he dog didn't wagon. know his wife sold it without his permission. Like somebody stole my penis wagon. Yeah, yeah. That's what that. That's the crux. We found it. So. That that is you were asking what's the climax and the you know the turning point so that's like where he see it's a possession and then we see that his uh yeah he's been like emasculated he's been uh, yeah castrated because his hot dog wagon his wife sold his hot dog wagon without <laughs> his knowledge it's like it's just a weird thing to me too because like this movie is sort of sold to people as like an old fashioned old timey weird thing which well, it is not at the time at, at the time it was at the, the, time, the it cutting was like, edge of hip new hollywood yeah, if you want to feel weird i recommend it was you visually this very yeah. new it was yeah. about the the new complicated ideas it was the same year as the graduate and and it features another few swimming pool thing uh, yeah. but i feel the same way watching that movie disaffected as I do suburban men in, like, in some yeah. swimming pools yeah oh, no Washington it felt it feels girls. very like much girls. like girls yeah like, you're right it makes me feel weird i'm like I don't, in that they both suck they both are terrible <laughs> and they're like about how they like they like demarcate how you should feel at certain points like oh gosh his wife and his family are no longer there. We're supposed to, that's supposed to be like a shocking thing. And I'm just like, of course they're not there. Fuck yeah. that guy. Like, Am I, I the only know. one that thought this was a morality play? It's just like these it are the, these are for the wages of sin are death. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. like you're not supposed to feel sorry for him in as much as like it's a cautionary tale. It's like this is a bad person and his chickens came home to roost. I think it would be that way, except the fact that the film doesn't actually 
progress through his life, right? Yeah, no, no, it no, gives you like the that, impression yeah. that what's going on is that it start that his life goes from being good to being bad because he destroyed it through his own venal selfishness. Yeah. But in fact, but that's how it unfolds the, by the, running into these people that don't like him, and you learn. But more the beginning and more about of the yeah. film proves that he has like at least half a dozen people who think he's the best. No, the reason that John Cheever is not as good as as uh, Raymond Carver is because. He thinks that you need to write everything in the story. Like, you need to be like, and then he went to the next pool and he walked through this forest and he did this thing and he did this thing. None of it which matters for the end or for the trajectory of the story. Whereas Raymond Carver, and we've talked about this, where he'll like, he'll be like, okay, so I'm just going to demarcate the moments in a person's life where they are going to remember that and they're going to uh, feel a certain way about a table, about a grain of wood or about a certain thing. And then they're going to go on with their life and they'll go back to a certain thing and they'll be like, oh, this reminds me of the grain of wood or the certain tabletop, or their, you know. And I think that that's sort of the secret that we learn from the sort of mid-century narrative storytelling where you have this like idea that like if you are as detailed as possible if you like describe a certain thing as much as you can and you're just like and this is what the table felt like when i did this thing and this is what it felt like when i fucked this woman against this table and this is what the table means for me and this woman and oh just jk this is what this table means for me well it's sort of like the idea that that the writers from that period believed that every sentiment every concept every every feeling they ever had because they were just like wait men can have feelings and that's why i think that like raymond raymond carver is like had this thing where he was like, actually, that feelings can invent a sort of narrative storyline. Right. So what's worse, the play in Birdman or this movie? Oh, the play in Birdman, for sure. Is the, the play in Birdman really worse than this film? The play in Birdman no hurt way. my feelings so much. No way. You like the play in Birdman? I like it better than this, I think. Explain I myself. Know. Oh, the play in <laughs> Birdman. Okay, so what, what's, what do you think? I mean, to be fair, the play in Birdland, Bir- in Birdland, in, in Birdman was like, like too real. It was just like fucking real. Like that's exactly the kind of shit you would see on Broadway. Yeah. Mm. What did you like about the play in Birdman? That it wasn't this movie. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I haven't seen Birdman. So I, I think you're know. jealous of Burt Lancaster. I could be. I think that his I eyes are be. really blue in this movie. Mm-hmm. I think they might have gone to the were really to the lab and said, "Hey, pump that blue up." I think they went to the lab and they said, these are too blue. Can you take it down a few notches? And they're like, we'll try. You think it was so blue it punched right through the film? Punched right through. That's why there's all the lens flares and shit. (laughs) It it broke the lens? Yeah. The eyes. Do you guys read a lot of novels or short stories nowadays? Like in your life, in your daily life? Not really. No. I've read some. I don't either. I mean, I read some, but... I feel like the New Yorker used to be this like bastion for what you needed to be an intellectual person. And then I started reading it like for real life when I was in high school, like my junior year of high school. And I started reading it and I was like, the fiction in the New Yorker is like really boring. I don't think any, does anybody read the fiction? When you're in high school and when you're in college, they get you to read so much fiction and they get you to, they, they seem to present you with the idea that 
what the well, human race has to offer is fiction. No, is I, fiction. When and I, when and I so they, they school, present yeah. you the entire history of the human race as... Is a lie. I agree with that. No, when I was in high school, I was like, I didn't have any, like, guidance about what I should read or not. I was just reading Agatha Christie, the same shit I was reading when I was in junior high and middle school. And then I was like, I'm going to start reading The New Yorker. My dad likes The New Yorker. I'll read The New Yorker. And then I started reading the fiction, and it was boring. It was about, like, dudes who were like... I feel insecure about my wife. I need to start fucking the curtains. And they like, fuck the curtains. And it's like, I don't know what to do about the curtains. Wait, what story so, was this? And, and then, then his wife like, is oh. like, oh, the curtains are dirty. And then he's like, oh, I can't believe the I think that there's a kind of fiction that gets, she was like, that's been published the in curtains. The New Yorker I, for the past hundred years. I need to leave the curtains for the grass. Then he's like, start fucking the grass. And I'm just like, oh, God. And is this, this a real story? Am I am I the curtains or am I the cr- it's not a real story? No. Am oh. I am it just I the sounds curtains really for a hundred years the yeah. New Yorker has been publishing fiction that seems to be about like what if there was somebody who had no idea what class was? Yeah. And, and that's like, the premise of every story that or, they publish. Or it'll be like a, like Oxen Burroughs was published in the New Yorker and it'll be like, That sounds insane. This guy was addicted to drugs. Like and it'll be like a, like what does it mean to be addicted to drugs and also white like <laughs> so I uh, I I like their more journalistic stories where they investigate things and then they like spend a lot of time researching like a campaign or something and then it's this I like the cartoons I like the New Yorker cartoons I know they're a joke those are like the worst no they're very funny they're very funny. Because they're all about those, old ladies. Yeah, but those ones are the most classic. <laughs> those are the most classiest thing in the New Yorker. I know, where it's like there's an amazing. No, I'm gonna say this on the podcast right now. I'm just gonna fucking say it. There's an amazing New Yorker cartoon. It's my favorite New Yorker cartoon. Where there's an old lady in a mansion, and she's at the bottom of the stairs, and there's another old lady at the top of the stairs, and the woman at the top at the bottom of the stairs is wearing a blindfold, and she says like, Gladys, Gladys. Don't try to cheat me because I always win. And it's like They're that's just not that's not even a staircase? fucking joke. That's not a yeah. joke. She's just like there's another lady on the staircase and they're playing hide and seek, and she's oh. just like, don't even try to cheat me because I always win. Like that's not a fucking premise. That's not a story. That that's like a fucking weird thing. Yeah. Anyway, Dale. wait. They're standing off on the staircase. Yeah. Just I have like, no idea what that means. It's so weird. It's my favorite joke though. Yeah. Which lady yells it out? The one at the top? The old lady in the bottom. She's oh. like, oh, yeah. She's like, because I always This is the silent win. air conditioner that's running. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway. Sorry. I was getting a little warm. Sorry about that. That was remote anyway, control. Oh, yeah, I thought you were trying to Dale, mute Eleanor. Dale, I really need you to talk more <laughs> this about This is my last chance show. to get a chance to use this damn thing. Yeah, I've not been a very good host, and I should be a better host. The hostess with the leastest. Host. I'm a terrible guest. No, I'm not a very good host. Yeah. Can we just like validate each other? Like, Dale, you're a really good host, and you're like. We should be enjoying ourselves. This you're is like, the last, you're really the good last host. podcast that we're doing Shh. in the Andre, murder. Andre, Andre, Andre. Dale, tell me that I'm a really good host. You're a good host, man. Wait, I thought you said you wanted to be reaffirmed that you were a bad host. Shh. You're a Say terrible host. Which one? You're a really good host. Sam. You're a really, really good host. Dale, you're a really good guest. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think. What you said about the swimmer <laughs> being like really? a shitty movie that a really terrible movie was like really <laughs> smart. Like, uh, tell no. me more about how you think it's a terrible movie. I don't know. Was this movie like big when it came out? No, nobody no. saw this. Huge no. failure. Lost a lot of money. Huge failure. Yeah. 
I can't imagine like times have changed that much. The, the the movie was so bad that they that the director was fired and the producer yeah. went and hired another director to come in and reshoot a bunch of scenes and it still was terrible. My thing about this movie that I'm so obsessed with though is that like it reminds me so much of how people talk about uh, fancy books now, like this this book, A Little Life, which won a shit ton of awards and like nominated for the Man Booker Prize. And like it reminds me of The Swimmer in that it's like. What if I tell the day-to-day story of a wealthy man who never thought about how his life affected other people? Like, like what it is to be a person who's just trying to get through the day? Because, like, like, a wealthy person who's just trying to get through the day, just trying to live their life. Like, what would it mean to, yeah, but do, this guy to write that home. story? Yeah. And, like... What that means is that you win a fucking Pulitzer Prize because it like the uh, it means you get to deal with your emotions. It means that you get to uh, interrogate verbally your relationship to uh, other people in your career and in your personal life. But we should talk, I think, about why it wins prizes. So well, isn't that what uh, isn't that what everyone wants to do with their art? Is all the things you just I mean, listed? My thing with this book is that I read it in a very short period of time, considering I read it in about a week and a half, most of it on the bus. I hated it. Which bus? On the 22 bus. Um, and I... <sighs> but I also read most of John Cheever's stories on the bus, so I was like, obviously there's a connection. If I read a thing on the bus, and if I, it must be connected to each other. But I think that with the A Little Life book, which has been nominated for so many prizes, it must be a, a thing that people feel good about getting through. They must feel smart and feel like a better person that they got through this book, right? They're like... Is it long? Yeah, it's very long. It's uh. about 800 pages. And... But I... I can't really understand... That's way longer than the Legend of Korra fanfic that I read last what did you read? What uh, Andre, tell me about the fan fiction you read. Well, it turns out that the like that the airbenders that were the new airbenders after the the end, last one after the end of the third of uh, second season when there was the big fission, like the yeah that they lost their airbending. It was temporary, and so they they all had to go back to living their dumb old lives, and they were all miserable again. What's an airbender? It's somebody who can move air around, which I guess is like everybody, right? Like an air conditioner? <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> I mean, if you're farting, you're, you're air bending. I mean, your description of that sounds to me worse than a, a John Cheever story. It wasn't great. But I'm so it, was, it was definitely less than 800 pages. The reason I bring up A Little Life, though, is that like it was this huge book that everyone was like so excited about. And they were like, it's so brilliant. It's so smart. It's so great. Uh, and I was like... It's interesting you say that because all you've been talking about otherwise other than this book is about like how you care about like socialism and like invested in uh, um, an aesthetic that breaks outside of like democratic norms. Like, uh, in are you talking whole, about your peers? Like, or are you talking about your period? I'm talking about my period always, but I'm also talking about how like this idea of a book that you like uh, is it's about a character. And about 
the premise of the story was that he she wrote this book because she was interested in platonic male friendships. And then I started reading this book, and like 15 pages in, they're like all fucking each other, and I was like, "There's nothing like this is not platonic male friendship." They're Sounds just, like, like all, you were the one reading fan fiction. I was like, These dudes are all just like fucking each other. Well, and, and I was like, "Wasn't like, Plato from ancient Greece?" And, and there's I was like, 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 "That's why it wins the man Booker Prize." This whole NPR thing where she was exactly, she was like, oh, "I was really interested in like platonic male friendship and like what it means." to be like emotionally available does she not know what platonic dudes? means if and they're I all was fucking like, each other all... then that's like platonic in like... the way plato meant it. And I was yeah like... yeah or, or wait I... aristotelian <laughs> so boring and stupid and so hercules I'm very who was the one that got corrupted boys with modernism and romanticism which is why i wanted to have yeah. this podcast because i find that romanticism often means someone ending up safe someone ending up like the main character in the swimmer who's like Oh yeah, I was wrong, and I like did all these mistakes, but like, I'm just all it means is that I'm locked out of my mansion. Yeah, and but like he's... in a life, it's like, oh, I failed in my endeavors, but actually, all it means is that all these women are in love with me, and it's sad because I uh, killed myself, like I said I was going to. But I'm I'm baffled. And I'm just like sort of like I just want someone to disappoint someone. Like I want it to be. Um, how I don't understand how it's a safe ending when he ends up his house is abandoned boarded up that's not he's not home his home is gone like but how the, is that a safe happy ending we no, know that 12 a, hours ago things were totally fine for him and that he can just if he wants to get in a cab and go back to that house he was at at the beginning of the movie and hang out some more and it is a safer I, I, I agree with you it is a safer ending though than like anything else nowadays like that you see in fiction. This like, guy's just he, like, he's not a, like a a veteran who's coming back from Korea. Yeah, but with none of the story is real. It's a well, Greek, actually, he is. It's a Greek tragedy. John Cheever uh, had an honorable discharge from World War II, which he brings up in all of his introductions. He's like, I had an honorable discharge from World War II. But <laughs> but I mean, it's 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 unreal in the way My that my honorable like, discharge you, mean that I I was from the Upper East Side. So, <laughs> but it's it's a. Uh, unreal in the way where like a fairy tale is like and then the knight got home and his castle had been knocked over and you're like i don't identify with that knight's castle but it, it's just it's yeah is no. it maudlin maybe that's the word i'm yeah, looking for I think but it's it just is, like a greek tragedy he had more than any of us have ever had and after and he, he lost, lost a portion of it he still has more no than he us. lost all of it he did didn't. you guys not watch the movie? People progressively hate him until he has yeah, nothing and it starts raining. But the thing raining. is that it those, literally starts raining. Those people already hated him when the movie started, and the right. people who liked him when the movie started still like him. Yeah. So he yeah, didn't but, lose yeah. or gain anything over the course of the film. The only thing that happened is that he found out what was going on at the same yeah. time. Wait, we did. Andre, are you are he you saying that if someone does a certain amount of humiliation, God forbid, he felt a little bit insecure. I don't understand what you guys... I mean, this is like... You're like arguing with a Bible story and then being like, well, it's not, what happened to Job wasn't that bad. And then being like, Job Dale. wasn't in in Vietnam or something. And you're like, it's that's not the point. Dale. It's a it's a morality play. And then Dale, you're, when you were Job, were you like like yelling at the people? Like, when God took doing? away everything from you to prove a point. Yeah, I, was very, I was very upset. See? Yeah. I'm still upset. See, it sucks. Good. You should yeah. be upset. What are you going to do about it? Take it back. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see that. Job 2, The Revenge. <laughs> Job 2, yeah. Where Job goes and gets everything back from God. He's got to go up to heaven and get it. Yeah. That's the story of Orpheus, I guess, isn't it? Orpheus. No, he goes to uh, Satan. Satan. 
That's oh. well. That sounds like a better story, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what like, little Nikki is like, actually. At what point in a movie, <laughs> w- when somebody goes to heaven, are you like, yeah, thank God we're going to heaven now? That's that's really what this movie needs. I was talking I to, to I was talking to a, a friend of mine earlier today, and she was saying how she was on the train earlier, and that there was a dude on the train who was like having a fucking crisis where he was arguing with the devil. He was just like, no, no, Satan, like get away, like stop. You can't do this. Like he was like having a genuine argument. Was Satan with the devil. driving the bus? Who was? No, 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 no. It was just like a mentally ill gentleman, and they were having an argument with the devil. And I was like, that sounds like, like fucking O'Neill. Like that and sounds Satan's great. Satan's there on the bus. Yeah, that sounds incredible. And she was like, yeah, and but like we all got through at the end, and then we all made fun of him at the end. So he got off the bus, and we all made fun of him. It was great. It was like a communal thing. And I was like, no, the communal, the communal thing was like you defeating Satan. Like, you fucking fought Satan on that bus, and he helped you. I don't know. That's I, I want to track back for a minute. Andre, you're saying that if it doesn't happen in the movie, it doesn't count. I just... No, no, I'm, I'm drawing... You're saying, it, like, he, are, he didn't lose anything throughout I'm the course of the movie. I'm drawing a distinction between story and plot. Mm-hmm. Plot is the things mm-hmm. that occur in the film, in, okay. the, in the order in which they occur, and the story is all the things that occur... In the order right. in which they occur in time. Mm-hmm. Right now, the story of the film is about this guy who lives his entire life and he has successes and he has failures. And when he, we start the film and the plot begins, things are not going great for him, but they're also not going super terrible. He's surrounded by friends. Yeah. He has all the resources in the world. He has safety. He has happiness. He's enjoying himself. Nothing changes materially for him over the course of the film. But this is what I'm saying about, like, how, what, like, literature and, and, like, high art filmmaking are supposed to be now. Like, that, like, was weirdly sort of maybe innovative at the time that he... I'm not, yeah. Sure, it was a movie about, like, a a memory rather than a, a, a movie that was about an event. Right? Yeah. It didn't have Aristotelian unities. Right, yeah. It didn't say that this is a thing that occurs over a particular time in a particular place with these particular people. It was saying this is about the entirety of this person's life. Mm-hmm. And the feelings that he has are a metaphor for the feelings right. that, he, that he experienced like in, over the course like of his in, entire life. Like in Woody Allen movies where he's like upset about something that someone said to him and it's like no it's it's more about how that indicates his subjectivity and his personhood not about the thing that right the the, the one yeah. thing stands in for the whole thing yeah right yeah. but i'm not saying they did a good job revealing it but it's about someone that's had a dissociative event mm-hmm. so he doesn't know what he has he doesn't know he's lost everything so right. doesn't it so plot wise isn't that a right. legit plot to say it's about someone who who at the end realizes... But if that's the case, that means that the dissociative event happened at the b- before the film began. And I, th- yeah. I find it Which very again, charming like, and cute that you're, like, trying to make that, like, the lady character in it, like, a part of that. Like, because she's not... Well, everybody's as flat as everyone else, so that... Mm, no. Speaking of flat, I think that soda's going to tip over. Yeah, no, she's she's definitely less of a, of a person than other people. Like, she's... Like, I mean, I'm not saying that, that, like... He's not a terribly well-developed character, though. He's your main character, and all we know is, like... We spend 90 minutes drink. developing this character. Yeah. So we don't, though. Yeah. We, spend, we spend 90 minutes not developing him. Yeah, right. I, 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 I don't know. I think I think that she's less of a character than he is. Like, and I think you'd have to... Well, who's being misogynist now? Dale, who? Am I a misogynist? Tell me, please. I think so. 
Tell me if I am, though. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, tell no. me if I am. No, I, think I do you're... hate women. I do hate <laughs> beautiful. I hate I'm... beautiful women. I've told this on the podcast before. I hate beautiful. The podcast. Women. <laughs> Just beautiful the women. Or I hate. Women? No, it's beautiful women. Like I hate them. Like. That's okay. It's not okay that they're so beautiful. Like it's not fair. Yeah, do you ever just see Is someone like beautiful a, and just makes you mad? I hate them. Yeah, I hate the beautiful women so much. <laughs> like, mad at God and they're just for like, creating something so beautiful. I hate them. That's how I feel when I look at Renaissance marble sculpture. And they sculpture. say that they had a hard time. I'm like, no, you didn't. This is how I feel about that robot that got created to kill weeds. Did I tell you about this? <laughs> no. They were like, Andre? they were trying to create a robot that would pull weeds out of the ground but they couldn't figure out a way to get the dexterity and the fingers of the robot so that it could pull the weeds out without like so leaving enough b- behind so that the the weeds would just grow back so what they did was they created a robot that would just punch the weeds to death <laughs> so it, the robot I thought this this to me I immediately came up with like a Kurt Vonnegut pick, short like, story yeah. where they finally develop a robot that's capable of doing it but it, it, it just sits there and they think it like well it, it doesn't function what is it, it, it's did its yeah. mainframe burn out? Did we like short a circuit? And it turns out it's that the robot that has that has the skills necessary to pull a weed realizes yeah. the beauty even of a weed and the poeticism of a weed being a living thing in the wrong place. And so it's like because you would have to understand weeds so well in order to kill them so that, prob- that yeah, by that, the time it, you it, understood them that well, you wouldn't want to kill them. Yeah, anymore. it like weeps at the beauty of nature, and so therefore like fails to act no 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 no. what the actual robot is is just a piston that punches into the ground and i like to imagine that this robot is just crawling beauty crawling along the ground and muttering curses to itself as like you motherfucker yeah you're like you're like god's most beautiful creations we must we must destroy with extreme prejudice some, yeah. some a creature that crawls along the ground punching things to death is just so it's like so angry and also so pathetic at the same time it's like Gollum. yeah <laughs> yeah but like a, a a miserly little shitty Gollum. you know like shittier even no, than Gollum. no but like my least favorite feminist fiction is when like i'm watching a thing and then they'll be like the main character will be like in love with the woman and they'll be like uh oh but he saved her she was too beautiful for his ugliness and i'm just like god just fucking like fucking kill her it's fine like you don't you you don't know what life is it's okay like <laughs> you don't want to experience life it's okay to just like end it i don't know like that's how i feel about this about this fucking movie where he in- endeavors with his like relationship with these women is like a way of making himself more legit in his quest to swim to his home he's like well if i'm nice enough to these ladies they'll let me swim through the county well maybe he oh, rep- so in that, maybe in he that ran- case water once again represents women's sexuality, women's sexuality exactly and it's just like no, no yeah he is a sperm trying to swim up the uh yeah, birth yeah. canal yeah He's I'm sorry every time i talk about women i just see you guys some, like tuning out fist, so 50 year old yeah. sperm yeah, yeah this did read like a viagra West commercial to me oh. it did this look like, like that yeah yeah it was yeah. just like Anyway, uh, I think that we should do now a B C D plug. Okay. Andre, do you have a plug? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, everybody should uh, go if you're in New York. Check out the uh, 
the New York premiere of uh, I Like America and America Likes Me, the movie by uh, Normal is Good, the fashion line that I shot for. Uh, that'll be uh, coming up in May, and then uh, as soon as that's done, it's going to have the premiere in Cuba. Um, and you can see that on the Normal So it's not a Joseph Boys film. It's about Joseph Boys, okay. but it's also about the relationship between Cuba and America. Ah, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Yes, and um, that's a movie I made with Yali Ramagosa Sanchez. Though I believe she only goes by Yali Ramagosa now. Dale, what would you like to plug? <laughs> um, I would like to plug uh, my shows. I do. Uh, yeah. I have a uh, I have a monthly show at, at North Bar. Last Monday of every month. Eleanor and I have been to this show, and it was a lot of fun. It's yeah. true. Next month, uh, April twenty fourth, we have twenty fifth, we have. C.J. Sullivan headlining. Mm-hmm. And then uh, two days later on the 27th, I'm doing Comedians You Should Know. Mm-hmm. So that's, At uh, Timothy O'Toole. Exactly. Yeah, that should be good. And then, like, cool. uh, next Sunday, I'm doing a show at, like, that bar across the street from Harmony House. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Frank and Mary's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. And yeah. Eric. Oh, okay. I thought we were just putting in his thing. Um, let me put it, let me put in my thing uh, a plug let me plug it if you will plug it um, yeah we were we were chatting about this cat house called Harmony House for Cats and it's where I volunteer and it's in uh, Dale's neighborhood yeah very close yeah so um, volunteering consists of uh, getting the lay of the land and then just hanging out with some cats helping them socialize uh, free pets, free snuggles, and um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can volunteer there, and then you can come hang out with me after. Yeah, get some laughs. Awesome. Yeah. Some laughs and some purrs. Oh, and uh, you should also yeah. check out a uh, brand new movie I just shot for Alex Phillips called uh, Happy Place, which will be uh, premiering uh, in the fall. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you so much. Noisy ghost out. Boo.